you, when you're in those waste facilities and you see these mountains and mountains and mountains of plastics and waste coming through every single day, it's relentless, it never stops. So where we jump in is that we are able to track the quality and the composition of that waste at all times. So from the start to the middle of the process to the end. Policy has a huge role to play because otherwise change is not happening. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Sourcing tech talent and delivering your software roadmap shouldn't be difficult. That's why DZ connects high-growth companies with some of the best pre-vetted developers from across the world. Whether supporting your in-house team, building your dream dev squad, or delivering a project end-to-end, DZ's unique model is trusted by businesses globally to help them rapidly execute software development. DZ is offering all UKTN listeners a 10% discount on their first engagement. Go to dz.com slash UKTN to access quality development teams today. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly conversation with founders of some of the UK's high growth tech companies. Each episode, we will talk through the founders' personal journey, their vision for their business and their views of the wider tech industry. I'm Jane Wakefield and I'm pleased to say that I'm joined today by Michaela Druckmann, the co-founder and CEO of AI waste analytics platform Grey Parrot. Welcome, Michaela. Hi, Jane. It's great to be here. Now, we're going to be talking a lot of rubbish today and I don't normally start an interview with stats, but I saw some quite shocking ones on your website, so I'm going to throw some stats at you first. 2.1 billion tonnes of waste produced each year, 86 tonnes of recoverable material sent to landfill. That's shocking. And tell me what those stats apply to. Is that globally? What are we talking there? So those are global stats. And in, indeed, it is very shocking. And when you look at the numbers, you see that this is increasing, increasing. So for example, we would have 4 billion tonnes of solid wastes produced per year in the next 10 years. So this is not a problem that is going away and it needs to be addressed very urgently. And it's a huge factor in climate change as well, isn't it? So just talk me through the effect that all of this waste has on our climate. So historically, we haven't really linked waste management uh, with, with climate change. Those have been very separate. But the reality is that they're massively interlinked. And in fact, the savings that we can have with waste management and recycling are equivalent to the carbon emissions of, of Japan, for example. So it is a significant impact, but it's wider than that because it's also changing the way that we consume, it's changing the material that we produce, and it's also transforming the oil industry, which is very linked with the petrochemical industry, which is the plastics uh, industry. So by 2050, about 25% of all production will be from plastics, for example. So these are very linked and we need to address both together. Now, I'm going to sort through the rubbish a bit here. We think a lot about plastics, but there's a lot else that we're throwing away. And the big question is, where is it going? Can it be recycled? I hear a lot people being quite cynical about recycling and saying, oh, it doesn't really matter because it all ends up in the same place. So talk us through whether that's kind of true or not. Well, first of all, all materials are not the same. All plastics are not the same. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of nuance there. So if I take you a little bit through their journey of what happens to your, <laughs> to your recycling, so you'll be buying a packaging, consuming it, and then you'll be hopefully separating that uh, for your recycling and putting that into your recycling bin. At that point, the material is completely mixed up, right? So you have cardboard, paper, plastics, and so on. So that material at that moment has a negative value. It's a cost. So somebody needs to be paid to come and pick it up. And so those are going to be the waste managers that pick up your bins, that's then transport it to what we call a sorting facility, a material recovery facility, where those materials are going to be separated. And essentially they go through different types of mechanical systems and separation systems to be able to end up in the end as, as a single stream material. So for example, just cardboard, just paper, just one type of plastic, for example, PT plastic would be your typical uh, drink bottle, for example. And once those materials are separated, they have a positive financial value and somebody is gonna buy that material and take it for recycling. And then explain how your company comes into this because it actually makes a lot of sense that you're using AI to help kind of have an overview of what's going where. So explain how that system works and what it does. Yeah. So if, if we just take a, a quick step back, because there has been a very significant change in the sector in the last few years. I mean, first of all, in the last 30 years. So we were used to sending most of our recyclables to landfill. In Europe in particular, there's been a lot of legislation that has pushed to basically incentivize recycling, so putting more costs to landfill. And so the economics of waste have, have become better. And so there is the financial incentive for the waste manager to actually recover those materials and sell it into the market. Uh, for a very long time, most of our waste in Europe and also in the US used to go to China. So we were very used to sending low quality materials. So when I mean low quality, it means very mixed up, very contaminated and sending that to China. So there was not really high requirements on the quality. But in 2018, when China decided to close its doors to the imports of waste, all of a sudden and put a huge amount of pressure on Europe and US in particular to increase the quality of output of the waste that they produce. And therefore this concept of quality is very important. So where we jump in is that we are able to track the quality and the composition of that waste at all times. So from the start to the middle of the process to the end. And currently today, this is all done by hand. So you will have people that works in these facilities that are taking small samples, counting through, weighing it and putting into Excel sheets to understand actually what's the quality. So we're allowing to completely digitize that process. So that helps for two things. One is at the operational level, it helps the waste managers to manage that process much more effectively and recover more materials. So we're seeing, for example, a 30% increase in material recovery. And it also supports then the trade of that material because we're able to guarantee the quality and the composition and the contamination levels that are in the materials that are then traded on the other side. So who are your customers? Talk me through a bit your business model, how you make money. So our customers are private waste management companies. So anybody that you'll see in the street with, you know, the bin lorries. So for example, Veolia, Grandin, Suez, uh, Bifa uh, in the UK. So all of them are our customers. So they're the ones who are responsible for picking up that waste, separating it and then recycling it uh, as well. So they are our first direct customers where we sell as a license 
our units and then the dashboard that they have access to to access all the analytics that happen in their facility. And usually they would get about five to 10 units uh, per facility, per plant, uh, to be able to have the full visibility uh, of their waste streams. Another revenue model for us is through our APIs. So instead of selling the waste sanity dashboard in itself, we also integrate with third-party partners. So for example, robotic arms or different types of software. So in that case, we work with machinery companies or other software companies integrating our, our data streams that we are collecting. Mm-hmm. And you've raised more than $16 million. So is there more to come in terms of funding? And, and what do you see being your focus in 2023? So we raised our Series A last year. So for us this year, we're very much focused on business execution and growth. So we have been fairly international since day one with COVID and having to ship our units all around the world. But we are becoming much more intentional about our geographical growth. So especially in Europe and in the US. Um, so really focusing on that and of course on product development. So even last year we had about 50 categories of waste that we recognize. We're tracking towards 100. And so what that means is that we are expanding to more verticals of waste streams. So for example, construction and demolition waste or construction industrial waste, electronic waste, batteries. So we're continuously adding to our database of recognition so that we can provide the same services to other waste streams as well. And finally, we're also, for us, as we're collecting so much data, so today we, 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 know we track around 32 billion waste objects per year, and that is growing exponentially. Now, what that means is that we're creating this incredible digital map of waste, and that information not only becomes useful to the waste managers, but all of a sudden it unlocks a huge amount of insights for regulators, brand owners, producers, and many other stakeholders in the value chain. So for us, it's all also about starting to see how that data can be packaged and, and, and service other parts of the waste value chain as well. And what sort of insights are you seeing? Are you seeing regional differences in terms of the way different countries deal with their waste or indeed different types of waste that different countries generate? Give us a sort of feel for, for what you're finding from the data. So we are definitely seeing different levels of quality. We also see, for example, fluctuations with seasons, with specific events around, you know, Christmas or so on. So there are some problematic packages. So they're supposedly recyclable, but they're not really designed for those sorting facilities. So what that means is that, for example, a plastic bottle might end up in what we call the residue line. The residue line will always go to landfill. And so if we're able to track the frequency at which that happens, we can also give by that information and propose design changes to the material. A typical example of that would be, for example, the Pringles box that has cardboard, uh, metal at the bottom, and, you know, the plastic at the top. Those are all perfectly recyclable materials, but when you mix them up all together, they are not going to perform well in these facilities. And so that information is supporting both the producer to make changes to their packaging design, but is then also supporting the waste uh, facility managers and mechanical companies to also design to separate those. So as an example, flexible packaging, which today in the UK is not widely spread in, 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 in the waste stream, you know, you don't usually put that in your, in your bins, but there are going to be a requirement soon. 
So these facilities also have to adapt to that. So we're helping to support how they're going to be able to adapt to that type of waste, for example. And are you seeing much change? I mean, you've mentioned that packaging is changing and we do notice, I've noticed different packaging in the supermarket, for instance, in the last year or so. But then you have new products come along. You mentioned Pringles, which mixes all those different materials together. Another bugbear of mine, and I wonder what you think about it, is vapes. We're throwing away vape in incredible numbers. And this is a bit of electronic waste. How do you recycle that? Is it recyclable or is all of that going to landfill? Is there anything we can do about that? That is very problematic. Vapes are very problematic. Batteries are very problematic. I'm sure you've seen videos of the big fires that happen sometimes in these facilities due to these materials. So vapes are, for example, materials that we see much more of, masks, all sorts of things. So when we start seeing that, what happens is that you need to have specific separation for that. So in principle, consumers should not put those materials in the bin, but if they become widely spread, there should be other ways of being able to recycle those. So there are ways of separating those materials, but they will probably have to go through very specialized waste streams. Same for batteries or electronic waste. It's not that they're not recyclable at all, is that they can't go in the general recycling waste stream. Mm -hmm. And it feels like consumers are happy to recycle to a certain extent, but there's also confusion, especially when you're faced with a range of bins and you're not really sure which one to put rubbish in. You tend to just go, well, I'm assuming it's general waste then because I'm not really sure. It's a lot to ask consumers to sort of know exactly <laughs> what's in a, an object that they have in their hands and how they throw it away. What, what can we do to sort of help consumers be more careful about this stuff? Well, first of all, Jane, I couldn't agree more. I think that when we talk about recycling, we put so much focus on the consumer and what we need to do. And of course, we have a part to play. But really, producers and the, the, the people who are putting this packaging onto the market have a massive responsibility of making that easier, clearer, and definitely designed for recycling. So something that is going to help with that is what we call extended producer responsibility. So this is a mechanism that is already in place, but it is increasing. And that's the responsibility of, of the producer to pay for the recycling of the, the tonnage of packaging that they put into the market. Now, when that happens, it means they have to be much stricter about what type of packaging they put, how they communicate it, and also we are massively doubling down on, on greenwashing. So claims like this packaging is compostable and will disappear, or, you know, it's a green material, it's a green plastic or whatever, you know, all those claims that are out there. Legislation is really coming into play to make that much, much more, more regulated. And I think so for me, it's a combination of the producers really doubling down on that recyclability design and also policy being very strict about the claims that are there and supporting that. And all that communication, marketing budget should also be coming from the producer side and not just by the government trying to educate the consumer. One of the things that we are helping as well is that because we collect uh, a lot of the data also at the infeed, so we see what is going into these facilities. So we can see, for example, in certain boroughs or in certain areas, let's say there's a lot of contamination. That information can then be sent back to the local authorities or to the businesses to help address very specific 
micro issues that are happening in a specific area or specific business, for example. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners. Let's talk about you for a minute then. How did you get into this? You sound very passionate about the subject. So what made you jump into rubbish? Well, first of all, my family has a background in plastics and recycling. They're entrepreneurs and and they built uh, their business around the trading of raw materials of plastics and recycled plastics. So I was looking at it from the end of the value chain, really when you look at it as as a commodity. But I always saw those materials as valuable, as something that is treated, that has financial value and that, you know, we need to treat in the right way. So I guess that was my first insight into that. The second piece was more a very strong willingness to use all my experience in startups from the last 10 years and specifically in computer vision and AI, building incredible you know, technology with very talented people, but really wanting to use that expertise and, and passion to apply it to one of the biggest problems that we have and the waste crisis being one of them. And so really it was the, the combination of the two that led us to start Great Parrots about four years ago. And you talked about the tech there. Let's talk a bit more about it. We've heard so much about AI in the last couple of months because of chat GPT and the huge advances we've seen in the way that AI can interpret text and create its own. Is AI in vision improving at the same rate, do you think? And, and just talk me through exactly what your AI system does. Yeah, so in the, in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen tremendous progress in, in computer vision, specifically by applying deep learning models and machine learning models to those image sets. So specifically, what we do is that we collect millions and millions of images of waste data. So all those pictures on conveyor belts of the different materials. And then we categorize all those different materials in different sections. So for example, plastic, cardboard, paper, and so on. But then we go much more granular. So for example, we will separate if something is a PET bottle that is blue with liquid inside or with a bottle cap and so on. So that leads us to a lot of different separation. And then we will train the models to learn to identify that. So this particular problem is is really fascinating because with waste, you have an unlimited amount of permutations. So if you take a, you know, if you're trying to recognize a Coca-Cola bottle when you're using it, I mean, they will pretty much look the same. And that's a fairly easy model to train. But when that bottle is crushed and crumpled and in all sorts of different shapes and form and, and dirty and so on, that becomes very limited. So this is why it's a very complex problem and very fascinating. The other thing is that this is not a data set that is widely available. So when you do, for example, facial recognition, you might scrape some images or buy data sets and that gets you going. In this specific problem, you have to go and create your own data set. And this is why we had to collaborate very closely with customers from day one 
even to be able to have access to that imagery and to that data set. So once we have all those images, we do the separation, we train the models, we process all of that in our units where we have cameras and processing units as well. And then we output all those results on a real-time dashboard. So minute by minute, you will be able to see all the images of the waste on those conveyor belts and the exact composition that can go at the minute level. And of course, that data can be manipulated in, in many ways. Sounds fascinating. So it's kind of learning through the rubbish. You don't have a lot of rubbish images to train it on. So it's having to train on the job. Is that right? So now we have millions and millions of images that we have trained on. But in the early days, there was a very big process of getting those data sets and working with our customers to understand how they wanted to separate that and how they wanted to read that as well. Uh, but thankfully today, those data sets are very large and they're keep increasing. So, you know, the waste that we're collecting in South Korea and that we're looking at in Peru or in Europe, they all feed in the models and, and, and really increasing that and, and making that even more accurate every single day, basically. And is that shared publicly? Because obviously in AI, there's a real effort to try and build up the training data for various systems. So currently our training data is not public. Some of the waste data is public, but currently this one is not. And this is also because all the data is collected on customer sites. So it's a, it's a bit more sensitive than maybe a general data set on another topic, for example. I want to t widen the discussion out a bit. You're obviously right at the centre of the circular economy. We hear that talked about an awful lot, but I'm not sure that people really understand what it means. So give us a sense of what circular economy means to you. Well, for me, it's a, it's a major transformation from a model where we perceive materials as disposable. So we use something, we take it, we use it, we dispose of it, and that, that material, you know, that value is lost at that point. And we're moving to, to a model that is circular in the sense that we design from the start to recover that material. Now, I'm a very big believer on the hierarchy of those materials. So, you know, reduce, reuse, and then recycle. This is critical. And we specifically decided to focus on the recycle bit because even if we reduce hundreds of millions of tons of, of material, recycling is still critical to be able to, to recover this. But the most important part is that we design from the start. And we're seeing that also in relationships because historically, waste managers are not used to talking to producers. You know, they are at the end, they are, they are the complete opposite of the value chain. They don't talk to each other. And now that conversation is happening. We're seeing, you know, the likes of Pepsi and Coca-Cola going to waste facilities and figuring out where their packaging is going and how it's produced. And we really see ourselves as the data enabler of that, the enabler of that conversation with information in the middle, essentially. That's really fascinating and a great point. So we're getting different packaging as a result of people looking at waste. What do you think, though, about the idea that we're actually getting less circular? I think I read on your website that the UK economy is getting less circular. That sounds like a terrible step back, especially compared to the optimistic view of waste disposal people speaking to product designers. How, how is it happening that an economy is, is not going forward on this issue? I think that the change is far too slow, to be very honest. I think there are definite efforts, but we get a bit lost in, in our efforts. So let me give you an example. So for example, when we 
you know, when we try to put compostable materials or different types of materials. So that initiative might be very good. It might be a material that is valuable. But if the whole infrastructure is not designed for that and we're not recovering those materials, that's going to have the opposite effect. And then I think that policy has a huge role to play because otherwise change is not happening. So we're seeing some of that coming into play, especially Europe and France, I have to say, are, are, are really leading the way there. Um, so, for example, there are proposals that a packaging has to first be reusable before it is considered to be recyclable and certainly to be single use. But it's really creating those incentives in the way that we design services and packaging from the start. And I think we have relied too much on the consumer pressure and businesses reacting to that, whereas actually you really need policy to create a very strong incentive for those very large companies that have been used to doing businesses in a certain way for a very long time to move faster. So we're seeing that, that move, but I still think it's, it's too slow. We also need to consume less, don't we? I've been to Tanzania and seen mountains and mountains of clothes that have been sent from the West to these countries in Africa. They don't really want these clothes. They maybe want some of them, but they certainly don't want them in the quantities they're being sent. You know, there is a, is a tendency in the West to sort of, well, we'll hive this off. You mentioned how we used to send all our waste to China. But really, essentially, what we need to do is stop consuming so much, isn't it? So this is a very interesting topic. And at the end of the day, this is the root cause. When you look at all of this, it all comes back to, you know, we're a consumer economy that is relying on GDP growth. And therefore, there's no macro incentives to be reducing. And yes, there can be initiatives, but ultimately we have to change the way that our economy works uh, in general. And I'm a very big fan of Kate Rayworth um, that wrote the Donut Economics model that is considering planetary boundaries, but also people needs at the same time. And that provides a completely different framework of looking at progress, because if you just look at GDP growth and what we consume, those problems will not go away. So you're absolutely right that at the root of it all, there is something much bigger that needs to be addressed in our economy. And I have to say, when you're in those waste facilities and you see these mountains and mountains and mountains of plastics and waste coming through every single day, it's relentless, it never stops. Even through COVID, 24-7 every day, you really think something must change in our way of living. Perhaps we all need to visit a waste place to see it for ourselves because it, uh, it is quite shocking. Now, I can't let you go without asking you one final question. Why are you called Grey Parrot? Because that doesn't seem to have anything much to do with AI or waste, I have to say. So the African Grey Parrot is one of the smartest birds in the world that has very special abilities to recognize objects, recognize sounds, recognize people. And so we, you know, really reflecting how AI works and that ability to mimic and to recognize. And we really wanted to have a reference to nature in the name of our company, because ultimately that's what we're trying to protect. Fantastic. Thank you so much. But I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTN podcast. Thank you, Michaela, for what turned out to be anything but a rubbish interview. Thank you also to our listeners. To keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments, head over to www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter. And you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. But until next time, goodbye from me. 
a quick message from our sponsor. Access to high-quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. Deezy exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. Deezy's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit deezy.com UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners.